I appreciate y'all bearing with me. There was really no other way I knew to, to treat that chapter except through sort of the symbolic way of interpreting. Um, Nick, you've been, you've been going through different methods of interpreting Scripture. There's four major ones. Y'all have been covering that. Which Have y'all done the anagogical yet, the mystical method? That's this that's, week. That's, that's, this week. Okay. okay, that's the last one. So that's basically what we were doing last week was the mystical method of interpreting Scripture. Um, it's not so much allegorical as it is uh, exper- experiential. How do, how do we fit into this, like, this grand story that God is telling? And so we can see how um, even like even the order of our worship service reflects what we saw in Isaiah 6 and the story of coming in, encountering God, being implanted with the seed, being sent out like this is how we, we're living out this story, right? And that's, that's a very sort of um, mystical approach to the scriptures. Um, it's not the only method, and, and you kind of need the others in, to not go off the rails with it. But um, the text sort of informs how we should approach it. Mm-hmm. And um, these next two chapters won't be quite so abstract. Um, hopefully they'll be a little more practical. I think we'll have some of the, the moral interpretation come out. We'll have some very clear examples of what not to do in just a little bit, um, especially with King Ahaz. Um, do y'all have any questions or comments from last week? Anything that we didn't cover that sort of was burning that we should address? Anything at all? Well, in terms of the literal message, yeah. we want yeah. to do that. And those verses you did last week. I mean, not really that much to add other than uh, this is a real event that happened in human history. Yes. And, and it really happened in the yes. way it's recorded here. And, <clears throat> yeah, and yeah. that's it. I think, that was, I think that was partly why I was hesitant in how I answered when someone said, well, is this a vision or did this actually happen in the Holy of Holies? I didn't really... That's... That's not really a question that can be answered because this did actually happen, well, right? Happened. So <laughs> even if it was a vision, it was a it was a real event. Oh, absolutely. Like right. even if it was a vision, yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. I knew it was yeah. a real event. I didn't know yeah. it was it wasn't in the temple in yeah. the holy of holies. I had never yeah. seen it. I just thought wherever it was was the holy. Of right, 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 yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm inclined to answer. Like I said last week, I'm inclined to answer yes with that, but it's complicated uh-huh. because. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Because, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's complicated. Paul had, a, Paul had a vision, and he said, I don't know if this was in the body or out of the body. I, I don't know what happened. Yeah. All I know is that I encountered God. Um, yeah. uh, I think this is sort of the same thing. So, so yeah. A vision's yeah. a vision. A vision's a vision. And, and, and it really happened. In a moment of time, at a particular place, mm-hmm. Isaiah had this vision. Um. Yeah. Um, great. What else? You know, I think about the old hymn that says, "All thy works shall praise thy name, earth, yeah. and sky, and sea." And I think about this vision that they had of the reality of the cherubims and seraphims mm-hmm. crying, "Holy, holy!" And what things He has for us to see, and even see creatures. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it's beautiful to think about, even if we call it vision, it really counts because you're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, if it's a vision, he might, if the vision came to him, but it's making reality that he saw. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going into the heaven. Heaven is right here, sometimes I think. Mm-hmm. You just can't see it. Yeah. Just yeah. It's just open. Yeah. And it's yeah. open. It feels like a vision, but it's real. Yeah. Um, Paul calls it the um, 
the principalities. That's it's the this is what it's the realm of the principalities. So, you know, he's watching you know what's playing out in, you know, the the mundane what we call the real world is nation rising against nation, kingdoms rising and falling, war and rumors of wars. Um those are the dragons. You know, the chaos monsters. Um and in reality, in real reality, they're serving at the feet of Christ. You know, that is that's that's the real reality. That's the real reality. Yeah, yeah. That is that is uh that's what's going on in the heavenlies while it's playing out on earth. Um yeah. And the real real. The real real. <laughs> I think that's the best way to look at it. You know, if it was locked into the material creation and you were slime, then Isaiah the only way for him to be in the Holy of Holies would have been to be the high priest on the day of atonement. Which he wasn't. Which he was not. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think there is a there is a little bit of a hint of um, the Holy of Holies becoming available to everybody in the very near future from this point. Yeah. And, and you'll start to get more and more hints as we go along in the book of Isaiah. I think Isaiah having this experience kind of starts yeah. that ball right. rolling uh, with it. Which yeah. Yes, yes. Um, well, and the fire of Pentecost, you know, the whole the the holy fire coming upon yeah. the church and then going out into the world. Um, okay, good. So we had the vision, we had um, the the sending out. God tells Isaiah to basically be Moses to Pharaoh um, to preach the word, even though hearts are going to be hard, ears are going to be stopped up, and Hang on, let me pull Isaiah 6 up. We had a few verses left to read. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant. I'm in verse 11. And houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many. In the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And I saved that for this week in case we want to spend some good time here talking about the holy seed in the stump. The Septuagint reads um, when it talks about um, the tenth remaining, it talks about. Uh, only only a little acorn being left, one little seed left, um, falling from the from the dead wood. Um, the holy seed is its stump, or is in the stump. Um, I, I said this. Uh, I said this on the first week uh, to to track to track the seed, track how he's talking about the seed. Because that was all the way back in chapter one, um, the seed going out is is the I mean it's the it's the grand story of scripture, and we we talked about this last week with the coming in being implanted and then going out. Um, this is the drama of God and His people, and we also talked about what is the seed. Um, not only God and his people, but Christ himself is the seed. There we go. That, that's, what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. The seed is the word. The seed is the word. Made flesh. Also. The word made flesh, right. And so we also have that, all that amazing genealogical yeah. stuff that, that you can trace through and all of that. You know? What's the thing, Job, you find where it talks about the stump and Job coming out of the rising of the stump? Job, uh, Jeremiah oh, talks about uh, shoots coming from the root. Yeah, that's in that's Isaiah. Uh, yeah, Isaiah too. I think Jeremiah is They overlap a lot in some of the, in the stuff that they say. I uh, many years ago, I think it was in Venezuela, I took a picture 
uh, and I could I don't even know if I could find it now, but I took a picture of a, tr- a bunch of trees that had been felled, and there was a big stump there. Yeah. And there was a living shoot that had come up out of the middle of the stump, and I took the picture and entitled it the Holy Seed. Nice. <laughs> Keeps growing. So there's a there's a great surprise in the story of God and His people, in the story of Christ and His church, where exile is the great tragedy. You know, the, there's the, the forbidden fruit and there's judgment and then there's being cast out from the garden. And that is the great, that's the great tragedy is, um, is not being able to be in the Holy of Holies in the, in the greatest form of God's presence. Um, but there is a, there's a secret, there's a secret grace in that too, because it is through exile that the seed is preserved. It is through exile that God shows up, right? Because God, as the seed, um, is born in hiding. He goes down to Egypt. The seed always goes to Egypt. Remember that, because that's going to come up a lot. The seed always goes to Africa. Um, And then the word comes back to the promised land, and when it does, it comes back incarnate. Um, Yeah. Um, not as a seed, but as a tree, you know, actualized. Um, so that's where we left off. Um, that, um, just to jump in, yeah. that passage in Job is in chapter 14, so it's fairly early. Mm-hmm. And he's lamenting, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grows old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet it will send water, it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? <laughs> and where is he? So it's, 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 it's interesting, you know, use of the stump and the, and the sprout uh, as juxtaposed to death and burial, basically. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Job 14, 7 through 10. So now Isaiah's been commissioned, and here is here's the first thing that happens. Isaiah 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, I'm probably butchering those, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Okay, so this is where it's going to help for us to use a different interpretive method because um, we need to put on our, our literal historical hat to Absolutely. understand what's going on here. Um, first of all, before we say anything, let me let me let me say that um, when you hear about Ephraim in Isaiah, Ephraim is the northern kingdom. Yeah. That's the northern kingdom. Um, it's confusing because these names overlap. Yeah. The northern kingdom, Ephraim, and Israel are all the same thing. The, Israel as as distinct from Judah, right? Because at this point. After Solomon, you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We usually mean Israel as like the people of Israel, but but in in Isaiah and in a lot of these prophets, at this point, they're not the same thing. They're two separate kingdoms. In fact, you're going to see that they're about to wage war against each other. That's how separate they are, which is tragedy of all tragedies. Um, Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. And it's also called Ephraim because that was the greatest tribe at the time, which is really interesting because Ephraim wasn't even one of the 12 tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph, who was one of the 12. So already you have, on the one hand, it's this sort of breakdown, but it's also, it's also like a secret blessing in disguise because the most prosperous one of them all ends up being sort of this this mix of Israel and Egypt. Remember, Joseph married an Egyptian woman, right? And so these are sort of, these are sort of like um, half-breeds, you know, and that's why the Samaritans are so hated later because they came from this area. 
this is Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of Ephraim. I don't know. Would you yeah. say that Ephraim goes up into Samaria and stuff that they begin to inhabit up in there in Israel and so forth? That's the, that's the land that's portioned out for them. Okay. When, when Joshua yeah. and the, the conquest and all of that happens, um, Joshua says, you can have this area. Well, as it turns out, the, the blessing of uh, the, the blessing that comes upon Ephraim in particular, but Ephraim and Manasseh, is such that they end up prospering more than most of these tribes, right? So, so they uh, sort of, well, the capital city is, is, is in um, Ephraim. It's, it's Samaria. Samaria is, is the capital of the northern kingdom. So you have Jerusalem down below and, and Samaria up above. So when you hear Samaritans in the New Testament, that's the history, and that's important to know um, because uh, the northern kingdom... Uh, becomes corrupt much faster. And you see this very clearly in the, the writings of the prophets. The northern kingdom falls quicker, partly because they're more corrupt. Um, it's a very normal thing in scripture for uh, God's judgment to be just sort of a natural playing out at the consequences of your actions. Sometimes God steps in and does something unusual. We call those miracles but more often than not, judgment from God is saying, okay, this is what you want. Here are the consequences of it. It's the law of sowing and reaping, um, which Proverbs is full of. Um, and, you know, the law of sowing and reaping is, is uh, I mean, that's the seed. <laughs> so, um, is also an example of uh, God favoring the younger over the older. Yes, yes. And Jacob is blessing them. He intentionally puts his right hand on Ephraim, who was the younger brother. So in that way, according to human judgment, uh, certainly culturally Jewish judgment, um, he's kind of being a usurper. Well, in fact, uh, Joseph starts to say, no, 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 it's this one. This is the older one. And Jacob says, I know, I I know, (laughs) I know. He will be great too. The eldest will be great, but this is the one where God's really, you're really going to see um, something amazing. Off, Jeroboam was uh, from Ephraim. It, it, was, yeah. it was like the royal line came from Ephraim for the northern kingdom. Um, when we get later to the Samaritan woman in John 4, uh, Christ is giving a teaching about right worship. Worshiping in spirit and truth, right? It helps to know this historical background before you approach John 4 because, because that's what this whole thing is all about in Isaiah is, is false worship, right? And the northern kingdom has allied against Syria or has allied with Syria against Judah, Right? That's how horrible things have gotten at this point in the story. So we can say pretty clearly that, that they're engaged in false worship at this point. Um, but it says in verse 4, or in verse 1, um, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not yet mount an attack against it. It was not time yet for Jerusalem to fall. It was not time yet. That time was coming, but it's not here yet. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. All right. Before we go on with Isaiah 7, I want to show you what Ahaz does in response to this. It says here that Ahaz was afraid. We could say maybe rightly so. I mean, he's been betrayed. He's... He's, uh, you know, it's, it seems very likely that the southern kingdom will fall at this point in the story. So what does he do in response? Let's go ahead, before we read what God says to Isaiah, let's go ahead and see what he ends up doing after he hears the word of God. This is not from 2 Kings 16, and I'll just read it. In the 17th year, and it, it gives some of the same names, 
same kings. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. That means, by the way, that he died at 36. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Remember I said that the kings of Israel tended to be more corrupt. Like the northern kingdom was on its way. It was having a much faster decline than the southern kingdom. And so it says Ahaz was like unto the kings of Israel. That's how bad he was. He was like them. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That is, um, that, that, I mean, it's false worship. That's, it's, it's sacrificing to a false god. Um, it's usurping the cross. Yeah, yeah. Sacrificing your son. Um, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Can we say that Ahaz was a religious person? Yes, he's, he's sacrificing all over the place. He's sacrificing to every god that he hears about. Um, but it's false worship. And it's false piety. And we will see that later as we get into chapter 7. Um, then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel... So the king of Syria and the king of Israel slash northern kingdom came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but they could not conquer him. Again, it makes a point to say they could not do it. It was not time yet. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, uh, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. Um, So like the, you know, the... The nations are shifting and moving around. Stuff is happening. So Ahaz, this is what Ahaz does in response to this. Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Assyria. The... uh, I mean, when, when, when God is talking about Assyria and Babylon and these nations, I mean, it, I mean he's, it's pretty much the devil. I mean, in fact, there's, there's, uh, there's passages later in Isaiah where the church fathers understand, like, even though it's talking about the nations, like, this is actually talking about Satan himself. How you have fallen from heaven, O oh, star, son of the dawn, like. And you can say that God is using the devil. I think we could say that. That's the, okay, that's the, that's the dragon serving God in the vision in the Holy of Holies. This is Isaiah 6 playing out. So this is why we were saying, like, as all this horrible stuff is happening, what's happening in the real, in the heavenlies, is the dragons are serving God, right? Um, Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, taking, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. And, you know, fast forward in the story, um, who, who takes out the northern kingdom? Assyria. Assyria. King Ahaz is directly responsible for that. King Ahaz called Assyria to take out the northern kingdom. In response to the northern kingdom's betrayal, the northern kingdom betrayed first, but King Ahaz's response is eye for an eye. Um, Syria and the northern kingdom conspire against the southern kingdom, and in reply, the southern kingdom literally makes a deal with the devil and... This is, this is the fall of the northern kingdom right here. So that's King Ahaz, and that's where we are in the story. So keep that in mind as we continue through Isaiah 7. Does anybody have anything at this point? It's a very dark time in the history of God's people. Um, and and, I, and I, I can't help but think as I read through this stuff... Craig's sort of interpretation of 
the history of Israel being played out in the story of the church because that's where we are right now. I mean, for, for, for how many centuries now have Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox all been killing each other and waging, you know, war against one another, acting like the nations, uh, making unholy alliances with the nations. Um, I mean, this continues to play out again. We're no better than they were, for no, sure. Sorry, I didn't Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it just makes me actually think of one of the passages we'll look at today in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, not that I bring this up as an illustration in the message itself, but uh, part of this part of the section we'll look at today is on anger. And Jesus makes a comment. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. And this aspect of controlling someone else's anger. Like Ahaz's rightful response should have been, I need to go to Israel and fix this instead of making a deal to save himself. So I just, I, I just, that, yeah. that kind of clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, come to terms with your accuser. Another thing that you can glean from the history, and it's also very disturbing, is how short-lived revival is. Yes. Uh, in, in Elisha's lifetime, God miraculously delivered the northern kingdom from a, uh, an invasion. Uh, and the same thing is true with Nineveh. You know, Jonah goes to Nineveh, and there's absolute, you know, one hundred percent repentance. And then a generation later, you know, they're back to their old ways and attacking the northern kingdom. So I don't know if um, I don't know if the Jonah story is before or after. Um, this it is before, because, but well, I, I was going to say that um, uh, Jonah and Isaiah lived at the same time. I mean, they were. I don't know if they knew each other, but they were contemporaries. I think, so. Jonah, I, I, I think it was uh, just like one generation after Jonah. So they that, were alive at the same time. That, yeah. um, you know, Assyria had completely turned back. Yeah. Yeah. We gave one to our son-in-law. Oh, I mean, we Brian, gave one to Brian. Brian wanted one, and it, it, George Guthrie actually did the notes in it. It's, it's pretty good, I think. Yeah. I have a method. Christian. It takes a long time to get all this history, uh, you know, straight in your head. And they lay it out like a play, so it's actually seeing what, you know. That's why it's helpful to have... Yeah. different hats to be able to put on when and this is why it's so great that Nick is leading through this stuff because sometimes the Christological interpretive method is best, sometimes the historical method is best and it's good to have it's good to have these different hats that you can put on at different times. It, it, the, the text informs how we approach it. So, um, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. We already know what Ahaz did in response. Let's hear what God had to say. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. That name, by the way, means the remnant will return. Him just being there is, is a sign of hope. Uh, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of resonance Syria and the son of Ramalia because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. And then he says something kind of mysterious and enigmatic here. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay. <laughs> At the very least, we can point to this last couple lines. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He's that'll, saying, that'll watch out, because if you do not trust me, you will not be firm as a nation. 
how you fare at this moment in history is entirely conditional on your faith in me. That's what God is saying. Um, it took me I, – I spent a lot of time this week thinking through the verses that came right before that where it says the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. And what does that mean? I'm still not quite sure that I know what that means. But I think – I think he's – I think it's a part of the warning because what he, what he says at the end is a warning. So I think this whole thing is a warning against Ahaz to be very careful how you proceed at this moment. You know, this can either be your salvation or this can be your downfall. Um, and I think he's saying um, Ephraim is about to be shattered from being a people, and that is directly tied to the behavior and the leadership of the king. I think that's what he's saying. The head of Syria is Damascus, the city. The head of Damascus is Rezin, the person. And. They're about to be no more. Was it possible that they that that event has already happened? So he's setting this up as an example to Ahaz. That just as I brought down resin, I'll bring down. Uh, it could be. Was that when Samaria was set up after Damascus fell? Is that? I'm not familiar enough to with that part of the story to say. Uh, I mean, Ephraim hasn't fallen. It says within right. 65 years, Ephraim right. will be shattered. But, that hasn't happened but, yet. Well, okay. That's the northern kingdom. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe that particular city. I don't know. Um, I, I, I think this whole thing is a warning against Ahaz. Yeah. And, and, and I think wrapped up in that warning is saying, look, you are the head of your people. Yeah. Like, you're the head of the city. The city's the head of this body. What happens to the body is the ball is in your court, basically, is what he's saying. Like, you are the head. I'm talking to you as the head. Pay very careful attention what you do at this point because, you know, this could be the death of you as a people. Um, in a way. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. Do you have anything on the number 65? No, I don't. It's just it just strikes me because it's so close to seventy. You know, in seventy was the number of the uh, captivity that God brought Judah back from. But this is a number that that is the absolute end of the northern kingdom. Yeah, maybe there's something there. I don't know. Uh, he says very clearly, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. The thing that Ahaz is worried about is not going to happen. Uh, the northern kingdom and Syria will not be able to take out Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem's appointed time to fall. So he's telling Ahaz, do not fear. Slow down. Don't make this worse, basically. Um, trying to reassure him, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. And uh, we already know what Ahaz did. Um, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. This is, this is remarkable to me. This, this, doesn't, this doesn't happen. Uh, God is saying, like, he's saying... Let me give you something to reassure you and to calm you down. <laughs> I, I want you to not be afraid. <laughs> well, um, ask me for anything. Ask me for a miracle so that I can calm your heart at this point. Put me to the test. Put me to the test. Uh, make it as high as heaven. He could have asked for uh, one of the patriarchs to come down. Uh, make it as low as the grave. He could have asked for someone to come back from the dead. He could anything, anything. He could have asked for manna from heaven, like anything, like to say, like, I, I am your God. I am in control. Do not fear. Um, ask me for anything. And what does Ahaz say? I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Uh, this is 
That's super spirituality. He is so spiritual. He is such a... <laughs> he doesn't need any help. <laughs> no thanks. He's such a pious person. He may have a spirit of religion. He, uh, he's so religious and so oh, good. <laughs> he refuses to acknowledge his fear and doubt. He refuses to admit that he is scared. And uh, he refuses to acknowledge his sin. He probably is ashamed to ask God of anything after all the false worship and all the idolatry and all the children that he's burned alive. Um, he's probably, yeah, I mean, he, who wants to stand before God then? Um, yeah, like Isaiah in the Holy of Holies, woe is me. That's, um, but Isaiah acknowledges his... Isaiah is humble. He acknowledges his own inadequacy before God. Ahaz refuses to do that. And I think you tell him, Ahaz comes in, oh yeah, I got all these other gods going on, but no, Yahweh, he's the best. This is exactly what Satan does in the desert with Christ, because Satan takes a word from Scripture and twists it um, to try to turn it into something else when talking to God. Um, because there is a verse in the Torah about don't put the Lord to the test. And I don't remember exactly where it is, but it's in there. There is a, there is a warning against yeah. that. But God told him to do it. But here God's, <laughs> God's holding that in a bag. God. <laughs> um, well, that may, David touched on something that may be in play here. Is it, well, no, I'll just, I'll just rely on my Baal, you know, on, my, on my little idol that I keep in my windowsill. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe. And I say, in today's life, okay, where we are right now in this world, and in the end of chapter 6 where he talks about whose substance is in the, in the seed, there's a substance here that says substance. And the Hebrews uh, says, now faith is the substance of things hopeful. Yeah. The evidence of things not seen. So, to me, it's like God is calling us. We're living by faith, not what we see, not the battle coming. So it's an encouragement, I think, to me. Uh, whatever befalls us here in this culture that we live in, just mm-hmm. living by faith. Anyway, so, yeah. And it's just that. It's an, it's an interesting exercise, though, to think, you know, if God made this offer to you, what would you ask for? <laughs> Well, you know, this, you know, this is a, in as much as this is a, a, a retelling of, um, the Exodus story. And I think it is, I think, I think Isaiah is all about the new Exodus. Um, we saw in the story of Exodus, how, the signs and wonders didn't do any good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they didn't change Pharaoh's heart one bit. Uh, miracles don't really do that much at the no. end of the day. You got to have faith. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know. And they didn't give the people faith either. No, no, they didn't. They didn't. Um, yeah, and, and Christ is well aware of that. There are times when the people are asking for miracles and Christ says... No, and he well, leaves. It won't do anything. Yeah, well, he, yeah. And he says, "You're not here because of me. You're here because you, got, you ate the bread. You got fed." God is, God is, God is more concerned about dwelling with His people. That's His concern. the The miracle is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. It's a means to an end, and in this moment, uh, God was giving a miracle, or He was willing to give a miracle. Um, as a means to an end of keeping the southern kingdom alive, he was going to give them whatever miracle they wanted, something to reassure them. That's so merciful and so compassionate. And Ahaz says, no, I'm good. I, I, I don't need anything. Um, I've got it handled. Yeah, he said, I will not test the Lord. Um, it's Satan in the desert, man. That's exactly, yeah. Um, the old joke about the roofer that was sliding off the roof Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah. you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> but what God God does not give them a sign. He gives them a miracle. You know, it's a promise, but the virgin will give birth is not a sign. <laughs> That's the actual event. Well, let's go ahead and go to that part, shall we? <laughs> And God said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? I guess this is Isaiah talking. (laughs) Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. All right, Ahaz, you don't want to pick it? God will pick it for you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So he's, uh, there's a lot in there. Um, this is not, this is not a, uh, a very happy sign, very happy miracle. Um, but that's how the advent of God works. It's, you know, God's presence, God's arrival is truly both heaven and hell at the same time. Um, that's something you've heard me talk about before. This is a very mysterious passage, and um, I'm sure that King Ahaz did not understand it. I doubt Isaiah understood it. Um, It's one of those things that slowly unfolded over time. It's a sign that didn't take place during the existence of the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom fell before the coming of Emmanuel. Um, It may be that there was some sort of thing that happened with some sort of mysterious child in Isaiah's life that may have been like the first fulfillment of this prophecy. I don't know. Um, It doesn't really matter because this is pointing to to Christ, to God with us. Um, If I could add here, I think, as you say, I think the first fulfillment probably is in chapter 8. That's what some people Where some people think Isaiah's that son is yeah. born and then before yeah. he knows good and yeah. Isaiah has his own sort of surprise birth and, and some people think that that is the way this passage was fulfilled for Ahaz in that time. That's, that's yeah. common in yeah. scripture. Yeah. You have a prophecy and then a type Yeah. And then the later fulfillment. Yeah. Well it's a it's a it's a sort of a false peak. I mean, have y'all, anybody here ever been mountain climbing? You climb a mountain, you can't really see the top of it as you're climbing it. What you see is is what looks like the top, and then you get to it, and you actually realize that there's another peak you have to get to, and then another. It's, it's a false peak, yeah. You get to the top like four or five times before you actually get to the top. Um, this is a very mysterious passage. The, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew word um, just meant, you know, maiden, young, unmarried woman. As time goes on... And, and as scripture enters the Greek language, which is way more precise, um, then you, you start to actually read, oh, this is, it's not just a young woman. This, the virgin will conceive. Mm-hmm. And then... But and, the, the Jews themselves translated that way into Greek, though, correct? Correct. Right. Yeah. Correct. And yes. It was like 200 years before Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, it's not arbitrary. It's they, not arbitrary. They understood. They had been studying this for some time. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, when they had a language where they could be more precise than they That's were. That's what they did. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I don't, th- I don't think those two things are in conflict at all. Um, what else? Well, essentially, I know Psalm 90, where it talks about a day is in a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is a day. In a sense, this prophecy that he makes, which is set conceivably way in the future, yeah. But for God, it's like 
It's a done. It's a done deal. I think it's interesting. Verse 15, curds and honey, he shall eat. Because obviously, Jesus did not eat curds and honey exclusively. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, but these that? are two things. These are two of the few things that you can eat that don't require death. Dairy and honey. Okay. Um, everything else that we eat, uh, except for fruit and nuts, uh, requires some kind of death. So, interesting. Um, yeah, it's just interesting that Jesus is life. He actually is life. Yeah. So he's pictured here eating things that, that arise out of life and not death. Um, I think I think this is a very multi-layered thing, and I, I I really like that interpretation. I hadn't heard that before. I think there's something there's really something there. The the there are different foods and drinks that have properties of being either living or dead it talks about you hear about wine breathing and stuff like that yeah. um so there definitely i think is something there um i mean ferment bread being fermented or not has to do with whether it's dead or alive yeah. you know the the yeast and the bread and all of that um i the my the way i read this was um and this doesn't conflict with that at all um curds and honey is is that's the food of the nomads. And I think he's saying like before the boy is even old enough to understand what's going on, he's going to be in exile. And I think, I think that's a prophecy, not only that Emmanuel will be born, but that he's going down into exile himself. Um, that he's sort of taking on the exile of his people by, by going to Egypt. Um, I, I think it's multi-layered. So, There's also yeah. an aspect of sojourn there. You know, Christ, sure. was, Christ was sojourning on earth. His creation, yeah. where he did not belong. He had no place to lay his head. It's not the food of it's not the food of people who are settled somewhere. Right. You know, if you're settled somewhere, you're eating the fruit of the land. It's not garden food. It's it's um, it, it's what you eat when you're constantly moving yeah. from place to place. Yeah, the uh, yeah. the uh, uh, dietary anthropologists will tell you that cheese developed from, you know, people putting milk uh, in goat skins, you know, and then they take yeah. off. They're traveling and it's sloshing around and it's yeah. creating cheese in their curds. Yeah, yeah. Cottage cheese here. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds better than goat skin cheese. <laughs> you know, at, at the same time, and, and I'm... This is off the top of my head, so I don't I don't know how far to take this, but there's also there's also this thing about the promised land is gonna be the land of milk and honey. Um, uh, that was what God promised to Moses and Joshua was that that's what you were gonna eat in the land. Um, that's what uh, whoever the, the lover is in Song of Solomon, there's milk and honey there, um, which has to do with the land. So, so we have yeah. milk and honey. So we have milk and honey at Jesus' feast. Um, so this is all very mysterious. He shall eat curds, i.e. milk, and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Um, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So he's saying, he's telling Ahaz, what you're setting in motion, the consequence of that is going to be he's coming for you. Oh boy! Yeah. And that ends up being true because Assyria turns into Babylon. Babylon takes out Jerusalem. Then Babylon will turn into Persia. And then Persia will turn into the Greco-Roman world. There's the nations rising and falling. And over it all, God is sovereign and the dragons are serving him in the Holy of Holies. Wow. So anything else? We, we, I'd, I'd rather... Let that linger there before we move on to the next section. Um, this next section is going to be about in that day, sort of the day of the Lord. Um, but let's uh, let's stick with this for now. What? Yeah. I got a question. Yeah. Uh, what you been talking about here the last few minutes? Butter and honey shall we eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. Uh, of course, this is Christ. 
what do you think Isaiah means here? He, we know he's sinless. He is not going to do evil. And he will be good and always be the will of the Father. So what the correlation here is the butter and honey shall he eat, that he may refuse evil and choose the good. Because we know he's going to not do evil and he is going to choose the good. Yeah. Do you think there's a meaning here of what this butter and honey may eat in I think, I think uh, at the very least, we can say that um, the fact that he's eating traveler's food before he's even old enough to have the spirit of wisdom yet is saying that he's 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 a traveler as a as a baby as a child. So I think I think is I think it's at least in part a prophecy that he's that Christ is going down to Egypt as a as a child before he comes back to the promised land. But that's probably not all there is there. There's probably more. At the very least, I think we can say that. Okay. Yeah. It, Charlotte, do you have something? The picture that came to my mind when I read it that time is in Scripture we see when Christ went on the mountain and he fasted for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan. So we see the yeah. picture of him choosing yeah. Yeah. the good. So even though he was always sinless, we see that. Yeah. And then I thought, and then after that, he was able to eat curds and honey, you know, break the fast. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure there's. We could probably spend a year just on this chapter alone. I will say one thing before we go. One, one thing, real quick. Um, God fulfills His own parameters here for the sign, because He told Ahaz, "Pick a sign as high as heaven and as low as the grave." In Psalm 139, it's all about I'm in the presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us, and I can't get away. If I go up to the heavens, if I go down to the grave, the sign of Emmanuel is as high as heaven and as low as the grave. His sign of Emmanuel includes his burial. It includes his ascension. It's all there. And, and Yahweh uh, fulfilled his own, his own parameters for the sign to Ahaz. So this was, this was the sign that he, was, that he was going to give even before he told Ahaz to ask for a sign. So... Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Psalm 139, I believe.